Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're going to pose some questions to the presidential candidates, uh, questions we think they should, the voters should ask them during the 2024 election cycle, uh, which, as you may have noticed, has already begun. Joining me in this uh, discussion are two Facing the Future regulars, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Hi, Bob. Thanks, Bob. You know, it's been a Concord Coalition tradition over the years to put out a list of uh, fiscal policy questions for the candidates during presidential election cycles, and uh, 2024 is no exception. Uh, so we've got the budget deficit rising again. Uh, the debt is still on an unsustainable course. We have uh, Social Security and Medicare are nearing trust fund insolvency. We've got uh, problems with uh, other parts of the budget, expiring tax cuts. We have longer-term issues like climate change. So, you know, we... Uh, we put it all together and uh, came, came up with a list because, you know, really. And like a voter's guide, right? Yeah, it's like a voter's voter's guide. You know, if if candidates do or promise to do nothing about these things, you know, voters ought to know about it. If we're on if we have these problems ahead and candidates are saying, I'm not going to do anything about that. You know, uh, you might want to uh, think twice. So uh, let's go through the questions. I think we've got 12 of them. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to necessarily spend a lot of time on all of them because you can find these on ConcordCoalition.org, uh, where you can find a lot of other good information. So um, let's begin with the first question, which is kind of fundamental. The national debt is already near an all-time high relative to the size of the economy and is projected to nearly double over the next 30 years. So the question is, do you think this is a problem? And if so, what is your plan to put the budget on a more sustainable trajectory? Tori, what do you think? What? <laughs> I think this should probably be the number one question that any voter, I mean, you know, New Hampshire voters are very lucky. They get this great exposure to presidential candidates and they, they have this unique position and unique responsibility in our in our political cycle. So I, I think that New Hampshire voters in particular, um, this is probably one of the first questions they should be asking any candidate is, you know, what is your plan to reduce our debt or to at least stabilize our debt. Um, according to the, the Congressional Budget Office, you know, our, our national debt is projected to be about 118% of GDP by 2033. So that's in about 10 years, um, which let's just say that's record levels. Okay. Um, but even if current laws remain unchanged, so if we sent Congress home and they did absolutely nothing, 
the debt's going to continue to grow and will eventually exceed 180% of GDP by 2053. So it's basically doubling in 30 years. Um, so yeah, I think it's very important that, that, that voters should ask this question of our politicians. Uh, I know a lot of, uh, a lot of voters, they sort of sit and scratch their heads and say, why should we concede, be, why should we be concerned about the size of our, our debt? How does it affect me? And here are a couple of reasons why. Um, you know, when we have a big debt, we have to finance that debt with uh, net interest payments. And net interest is the fastest growing category of spending in the federal budget. Net interest payments, that's, that's money that we can't spend on new roads and new bridges. It's money that we can't spend on, um, you know, broadband development elsewhere or improving access to prescription medicines or better health care. Um, also, you know, when our debt gets so big, uh, it, it inhibits our ability to respond to the next fiscal crisis. You know, there might be another pandemic sitting around the corner. There could be another recession. There could be another natural disaster. And God forbid there could be another war um, that, you know, directly involves the United States rather than one that indirectly involves the United States. So I just think that, yeah, this is absolutely, you know, the number one question that that voters need to ask lawmakers is, you know, is our national debt a problem? And if so, what is your plan to get it under control? And if they say, I'm not going to worry about it, or if they, you know, don't give you any specifics, then I think that's a reason to be concerned. Yeah, Steve, it has uh, longer term economic effects as well. I mean, uh, you know, you get into the general generational aspects of just uh, letting the debt run on autopilot like it is. Yeah. So I actually wrote a paper uh, last year looking at uh, the, the, the intergenerational burden of the national debt. And, you know, the, the traditional sort of economic argument is that when, you know, when people buy government bonds as an investment, they're not buying corporate stocks and bonds as an investment. And so you essentially have this phenomenon that's referred to as crowding out where, you know, investors are holding government debt as opposed to private debt. Well, in the private sector, the debt, you know, whether it be, you know, securities, debt, equity, uh, that, that goes to finance buildings and factories and computers and equipment, and that helps the economy grow. And so the more debt held by the public, the less, you know, the less investment is made in the private sector. That's often referred to as crowding out. And, you know, and to put some numbers on that, um, you know, my research indicated that, you know, every time you increase the debt held by the public by 10 percentage points of GDP, that reduces lifetime consumption uh, of future generations by 1%. Well, to put that into numbers, that's about $18,000 over a lifetime. Well, you know, the, the level of debt we're talking about is not 10% of GDP, but 100% of <laughs> GDP. And, you know, that's going to crowd out 10% of lifetime income, which is $180,000. So, you know, on, on a sort of comparative basis, future generations will be worse off because their lifetime consumption would have been reduced by $180,000 uh, because the debt were, you know, were the debt to actually rise, the publicly held debt were to rise to, to 100% of GDP. Now, currently we're, we're at that level, but that's not all held by the public. Part of that's held by the Federal Reserve, part of it's held by foreign investors. And so each of those have a different effect in terms of uh, balance of trade, in terms of inflation and monetary policy. But the, the, port, the portion that really matters, the debt held by the public in terms of investment there is a significant crowding out effect and uh, future generations are going to pay the price for that. Let's talk about uh, the uh, the other 
D, deficits. <laughs> we talk about uh, debt. And of course, it's the deficits, the cumulative deficits that add up to the, the debt. Um, annual budget deficits are projected to come close to $2 trillion uh, on average over the next 10 years. So we have a question about that. That, the, that question specifically reads, Federal budget deficits are projected to average $2 trillion over the next 10 years. Where does deficit reduction fit within your policy priorities? Um, you know, it closely follows the debt question, but, you know, we put it in there because, Steve, you did a little calculation about if you put off trying to reduce the projected budget deficits, the cost of trying to close the gap becomes greater. Yeah, so there, there's a, a calculation that's referred to as the fiscal gap. And essentially, that's the what's the shortfall between taxes and spending, uh, given the current level of debt and given the level of debt that you expect or would like to see in the future. And so, you know, if if you started today, the debt is a little less than 100% of GDP, the total, the total debt. Um, it's a little less than 100% of GDP. If you were to sort of maintain that level, as Tori pointed out, it's projected over the next 30 years to almost double, go from, uh, you know, from 100 and uh, less than 100 to almost 180% or over 180%. And so to, to stabilize that, if you were to start today and implement a policy across the board uh, in each and every year, it, it would be the equivalent of about $700 billion a year in order to keep the debt from going up from the current level to the 180%. Now, if you waited 10 years, so instead of starting this year, 2023, you waited till 2033, instead of a little less than 700 billion a year, you'd need 900, over 950 billion a year. Um, so, you know, obviously Congress is not going to implement an immediate policy change across the board, uh, but, but this gives you sort of the sense of, 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 of magnitude that the cost of delay is going to essentially raise that cost by, you know, 35 to 40%. Mm -hmm. And let's put that in perspective too. Right now, Congress is dithering over, you know, $130 billion, you know, in fiscal 2023 spending. So $700 billion is huge. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing key questions that voters should ask the candidates in the 2024 election cycle. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. This week, I'm talking with uh, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson about a new publication we put out uh, on questions voters should ask the candidates in the 2024 election cycle. We were talking about a question of uh, where does deficit reduction fit into your priorities? And uh, kind of interesting, the Congressional Budget Office and their latest monthly budget uh, report uh, says that in 2023, the fiscal year that's about to end, the deficit is roughly going to double from fiscal year 2022, from about a trillion to two trillion. Tori, I thought the deficit was coming down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to put this question in here is I know that there's going to be there will be a lot of congressional Democrats 
running for re-election that are saying, you know, the deficit has come down so much um, in the last couple of years. And that that's giving people a, a false impression of fiscal responsibility when, in fact, what happened is Republicans and Democrats combined together to spend a whole bunch of money, you know, five, six trillion dollars worth on COVID relief. And now that that COVID relief, you know, is no longer being spent, you know, deficits came down significantly. So it's not something that congressional Democrats or even, you know, members of Congress and the president did. It's what they didn't do that led to the decline in deficits. So that's just one thing I wanted to to, to point out in terms of, of asking that question. And of course, you know, going forward, you know, that this is a point that, that Concord has made for many, many years since the, the, the pandemic started is that, you know, even when the, the budgetary effects of COVID uh, disappear, we've got rising deficits again, because we've got this uh, embedded imbalance between revenues and spending in our budget. And it just keeps growing wider and wider and wider. And so deficits keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and our debt keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So until lawmakers agree to confront this inequality between revenues and spending, we're going to have this problem. Yeah, I I just got a a question from uh, a relative uh, who you know had read a newspaper article about the deficit doubling and confused the heck out of him. It's <laughs> like, well, that can't be, you know. What is it? And I said, no, that's that's right. You know, this is this accurate because it, um, you know, we're resuming a pattern. As you said, I mean, this is the, you know, COVID got, was all in the news and rightly so. And the uh, fiscal and economic impacts of it really dominated the uh, news. Uh, so you figure, well, that's over and we resume to normal. And the problem is <laughs> going back to normal is now going back to, uh, you know, very high and growing budget deficits. So it's really uh, not surprising in that regard. You know, we've got two phenomena that are going on. I mean, the, the stock market and the real estate market were going gangbusters for, you know, a long time. Mm -hmm. And part of that was related to the Federal Reserve policy of low interest rates. Well, from the budget perspective, when the stock market's doing great, capital gains revenue to mm -hmm. the government is doing great. And when interest rates are low, then the cost of financing the debt is low. But I mean, you know, two years ago, interest rates are one percent. Now they're now they're you know four and a half percent, and you know every percentage point adds three hundred billion dollars to to the total gross uh, interest cost. And so you know when interest rates quote normalize, going from one to four, and the the stock market and the real estate market you know stops going up so fast, capital gains fall. So I mean, what we're seeing is a you know. Uh, we had record revenue and record interest, low interest rates, and that now has come to an end. Reversed. And <laughs> it shows up. It shows up in the budget. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the one of the causes of the underlying trend is uh, Social Security, which gets more expensive as the baby boom generation gets older, and the payroll tax that was put in place to pay for it some years ago is no longer sufficient to cover all of the benefits going out. And uh, that is projected to uh, lead to a widening gap over time. So we asked a question, 
Our third question, the Social Security Trust Fund is projected to become insolvent within the next 10 years. At that point, beneficiaries can expect to receive approximately 75% of scheduled benefits. What is your plan to maintain Social Security solvency? Steve, you've been studying this question for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> why is this uh, really so important for, for candidates to talk about this, this cycle? Well, I mean, it, you know, if you go back to the State of the Union, it seems like uh, right now all the, the politicians are saying that our plan is to do nothing. And, you know, as, as you recall, Bob, the, our, our co-founders here at the Concord Coalition some years ago used to talk about the do-nothing plan. And they would say, well, you know, if you do nothing, what's going to happen is everybody's benefits are going to get cut across the board because the trust fund is going to be exhausted and there won't be enough payroll taxes coming in to pay the benefits that have been scheduled. And, you know, so doing nothing is really not an option because you will result in, you know, within the next decade, um, folks are going to see their benefits cut. And unfortunately, there's really no good choice from a politician's perspective. You're either going to raise payroll taxes or you're going to reduce benefits somehow, raise the retirement age or do something. And so, you know, the, the politicians are, are worried about, you know, upsetting or offending or, you know, annoying either the, the workers who are paying the higher payroll taxes or the beneficiaries who are getting lower benefits. And, you know, those are just choices that they'd rather avoid. And so, you know, as long as there's still government securities in the trust fund to cash in, they're going to delay doing anything as long as possible. And of course, you know, that's going to result ultimately in a crisis if you wait until 2033, having done nothing, uh, because at that point, the choices are, you know, are much starker, much harder and more drastic because people don't have any time to, to, to plan for them. Steve, I had a quick question for you. We had Chuck Blahouse uh, on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, a month or two ago, and he was talking about how, you know, we've been in this place before, 1983, 1984, the Social Security Trust Fund was, you know, months away from becoming insolvent. So the Greenspan, Greenspan Commission came together to put forward a plan um, and managed to, you know, pull off a win, right, under, I think it was Reagan was president at the time and managed to save the system. So, you know, a lot of lawmakers are running around now saying, you know, fine, well, we'll wait until we're a few months away from insolvency and we'll pull another rabbit out of our hat uh, like they did, you know, when Alan Greenspan was in charge of things. Um, that's not exactly a, a, a formula for success this time around, right? Aren't things a little bit different this time around? Well, yeah, and in two respects. I mean, at the time in 1983, current law had already scheduled a big payroll tax increase. So back in 1977, they scheduled the payroll tax increase to go uh, the payroll tax rate to go up to 12.4%, but it didn't kick in until 1990. And so in 1983, when they had this quote, you know, deficit problem and the trust fund was about to go broke, you know, had they waited it out, the payroll tax would have gone up automatically and that would have restored the system to balance. And so they sort of had that as a backstop. And so the, the, the choices that they faced at the time, I mean, they did some politically, they did some things that were painful by raising uh well, actually, let's put it this way, they, temporarily painful. They delayed cost of living adjustments from June until December. They began taxing Social Security benefits. Nobody liked either of those decisions, but they weren't, they weren't huge in the scheme of things. And they did raise the retirement age, but it was in 1983, they voted to raise the retirement age starting in the year 2000. You know, well, in 20, yeah, so in, in yeah, you know, 
profiles in courage, but in 20, <laughs> 2033, when we're facing the, the the deficits, there's no scheduled payroll tax increases that are going to take care of the problem. You know, there, there's no quick fix that they can do. And so, the, the, you know, the deficit will be much larger and there's no sort of, there's no backup plan. Yeah, so, yeah, so no I mean, backup plan, but the gap that they've got to fill is bigger, right? This time. Exactly. The, the gap is bigger and there's no off the shelf or baked into the cake solution that's going to help them out. They'll have less time and we'll, they'll be facing a much bigger problem. Well, uh, speaking of a much bigger problem, there also is a healthcare problem. Our next question is, how should the government curb its healthcare spending programs while maintaining or improving the quality of care? And you know, Social Security is uh, largely a demographic issue because of a rising, you know, the rising aging of the population. That also affects healthcare. It affects uh, Medicare primarily. Uh, but Medicare is also affected by the rising cost of providing services, which tends to grow faster than the economy. And to the extent that it does, it makes the government's uh, health care burden bigger. It also is important to note that as people get older, uh, their health care becomes more expensive. So as the population ages, you not only have more people aging into eligibility, but you have a, an older population on Medicare overall. And, you know, treating the cost of an 85 year old tends to be more expensive than the problems of a 65 year old. Really getting a hold of rising healthcare costs is probably the toughest policy conundrum that uh, policymakers are going to face because that's that that really is the you know the the part of the budget that's projected to grow the fastest. It's growing faster than Social Security, you know, by far, and faster than all of the discretionary spending. Candidates can't duck that one. They have to be specific about how they would deal with health care. And if they want to add things, the question <laughs> is, how are you going to pay for that? And uh, we're going to have to take another break. You're listening to Facing the Future. <clears throat> I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing questions that the voters should ask the candidates in the 2024 election cycle. We'll be right back following these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing key questions that voters should ask the candidates in the 2024 election cycle. Tori, we've, uh, we've come up to taxes now. We've talked about some of the big spending programs, but there are My a couple of questions that, uh, that we have uh, relative to taxes. Uh, and the first one is, quote, extending the 2020, uh, 2017 tax cuts for individuals and small businesses will cost approximately $2.5 over the next 10 years. Do you support extending those tax cuts? And if so, how would you offset the cost? Let me give people just a little bit of, of backstory. In 2017, uh, Republicans had unified control of government. House, Senate, and President Trump was in the White House. And one of their primary objectives was to pass a, a tax cut for businesses because we were losing a lot of our corporate tax base to uh, more tax-friendly locations abroad. So they passed this tax bill, um, but in order to get it through the, the House and the Senate, there were a lot of small businesses that were saying, hey, if you're going to give corporations a big tax cut, I want one too. And of course, if you're going to give small businesses a tax cut, individuals are like, hey, wait a minute, we get a tax cut too. So when they put this tax bill together, 
Uh, they used a process called reconciliation, uh, which has a whole bunch of rules and restrictions behind it. But essentially, to get this bill through Congress under the rules of reconciliation, they decided to make the tax cuts for small businesses and individuals temporary, and they expire uh, at the end of 2025. And that is one decision that the next president of the United States and members of Congress are going to have to deal with. Uh, these are tax cuts that affect, you know, uh, middle working middle income working Americans and small business owners. Um, and there's going to be a lot of political pressure next year on the campaign trail for uh, especially candidates for federal office to say, how would you vote on extending the, the, the 2017 tax cuts? And I would expect every member, <laughs> Republican or Democrat, to say, yes, I support extending those tax cuts. I don't want to raise taxes for, for middle-income, hardworking Americans. But it comes, as you say, with a cost, you know, $2.5 trillion over the 10-year the bu budget window. And it's even bigger than that when you think about, okay, these, these tax cuts you know, they expire in 2025, which is only part of the way through the budget window. So we're only talking about, you know, maybe seven years of cost when we say extending the, the, the these these tax cuts or making them permanent would cost two and a half trillion dollars on a permanent basis. It's probably even well, it is bigger than that. Um, so, you know, the question that we really need to be posing to our elected officials is, OK, I get it. You're going to extend these tax cuts, but I want to know how you're going to pay for them. You know, where are you going to cut spending elsewhere or where are you going to raise revenue elsewhere? Because if they say they're not, they're just going to make the deficit problem and debt, future debt even larger. And I know there's going to be a lot of conversation about how, oh, tax cuts pay for themselves, tax cuts, you know, increase, uh, you know, economic growth. And there is just tons of economic, economic literature out there that says that ain't so. So I think the biggest question out there is, okay, politicians, I get it. You're going to extend these tax cuts. How are you going to pay for them? And it's important to note that when we talk about these budget deficits averaging $2 trillion over the next 10 years, that is a baseline convention, which means that, uh, you know, what you just described as these expiring tax cuts, that is assumed to happen, that right. the tax cuts are going to magically go away at the end of 2025, even though you have most politicians saying we're not in favor of that happening. Right. So, so yeah, if you're afraid of $2 trillion uh, in deficits every year, then you really should be concerned about how lawmakers are going to pay for extending these tax cuts, because then we're not talking about $2 trillion in deficits every day or year. We're talking about, you know, 2.2, 2.3, 2.4, 2.5 trillion dollar deficits every year. Yeah, I think that that's one of those questions that you won't get a lot of. Uh, uh, you really need to press people on that one uh, mm -hmm. and ask mm -hmm. what the trade-offs are, because mm -hmm. it's so very easy to say, you know, I'll, I'll never let taxes go up on the middle class. Um, there's another there's another tax question that mm -hmm. we have, which is uh, really important, I think, for voters to look into because it doesn't get as, as much attention. Uh, and that's about something called... Uh, tax expenditures. And, and uh, that concept is uh, a little bit counterintuitive. So our question says, one way the federal government spends money is through the tax code. Deductions, exclusions, exemptions, credits, and other tax breaks known as tax expenditures totally roughly, total roughly $1.7 every year. 
Would you support reducing tax expenditures as a way to reduce the deficit and make the tax code more efficient? Uh, I turn to you again, Tori. <laughs> <laughs> because taxes are my favorite subject. <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting thing because I don't think people really think of this concept of tax expenditures, <laughs> but budget wonks know that there's a whole lot of revenue foregone in the tax code because of these things. It's a total sleeper issue, total sleeper issue. And let's let's sort of put some context into what we mean by tax expenditures. If you are employed um, and your employer, the person you work for, provides health insurance for you and pays for some or all of your monthly health insurance premiums, that in income to you, okay, that is income to you, okay, that is a benefit that you're getting that you're not paying for, okay, that is not considered income to you. That is not taxable. It's income you're getting, okay, your your employer is paying for health insurance on your behalf, and you are not taxed on that, okay? Well, that that exclusion, okay, that is ex- is a tax expenditure. As a matter of fact, it's, it's one of the biggest ones. And that income exclusion, for employer-paid health insurance, costs the Treasury about $190 billion a year. So as we're talking about ways, for example, to extend the 2017 tax cuts uh, and finding a way to pay for it, I think tax expenditures are one way to look for offsets. Um, if you've got, you know, when people contribute to their, um, like their IRAs, you know, retirement income contributions, okay, those are a lot of those, not all of them, but some of them are done on a on a pre-tax basis. So it reduces your, your income tax. You know, that income exclusion for retirement contributions, that's $371 billion in lost tax revenue per year to the IRS. Um there are uh, well, the home the home mortgage deduction is that's one that where I, per- I was going I, next. <laughs> I, I personally benefit from that, but I mean, there's you know there's exactly. there's uh, you know and there are policy reasons these are incentives. That's why they're tax deductions. People say, well, we want to incentivize you know a socially positive behavior like uh, having health care insurance or having uh, you know stimulating uh, home purchases. Uh, Steve, what do you think on the tax ex- expenditures? There well, is- yeah, so I mean, to, to connect the dots, I mean, you, you were talking in an earlier segment about the problem of rising health care costs. Um, as, as you may recall, uh, when we passed uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, what some people refer to as Obamacare, um, we included a Cadillac tax. Now, that's not because we were taxing Cadillac. <laughs> it's because it's because we were going to tax health insurance plans that were overly generous. So, as as Tori just said, you know, if your employer provides you with health insurance, we exclude that from your taxable income. But in the Affordable Care Act, we said, well, you know, if your employer gives you a gold-plated, you know chrome-plated Cadillac plan, meaning your plan is overly generous by most standards uh, of comparison, we're going to start taxing you on that. And that was one of the ways they were going to pay for the additional uh, cost of the Affordable Care Act. Well, it it was so unpopular, nobody wanted to pay taxes on their health care plan, that Congress kept delaying the implementation of the tax. And ultimately, they ended up repealing it. And I mean, that's the dilemma here is that yeah, there are a lot of tax expenditures and they cost the government a lot of lost revenue. 
But unfortunately, they're on things like health insurance and buying a home and contributions to your pension plan. And people view that as like, well, why don't you want me to have health insurance and buy a house and have a pension plan? If you're going to tax it and make it more difficult, you know, and of course, now the the, the problem there, here is there. by subsidizing it, we had actually end up making it cost more and people demand more. And that could actually, you know, is, is largely viewed as one of the contributing factors to excessive healthcare cost growth is the fact that we are subsidizing it. You know, the, the econ- economists will tell you if you want to get less of something, you tax it. And you want to get more of something, you subsidize it. Uh, but that not only applies to the quantity, it also applies to the price. And, you know, subsidizing housing and healthcare has contributed to the rising cost of both. It tends to be a regressive form of taxation in that the upper income people tend to benefit more from tax expenditures uh, than others. Well, um, yeah, but that's, the, I mean, when you have a progressive tax code, the bottom rate starts at 10, the top ends at, you know, 37. It, it's more valuable to you if you're in a 37% bracket than it is if you're in a 10% bracket. We're, we're, we're subsidizing upper income people. That's why I guess my, my point is in, 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 with some of these things. Right, but the point, uh, the point of this discussion, though, and this question is to get people to talk about priorities. All right. They're, I mean, not everything can be a sacred cow. Right. We, can, we, we can't fix this problem that we have, you know, if everything is a sacred cow. You know, if we can't touch, you know, tax rates, if we can't touch tax expenditures, if we can't touch defense spending, if we can't touch, you know, blah, 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 you know, fill the blank, Social Security, Medicare, <laughs> you know, then we're not going to solve this problem. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing key questions that voters should ask the candidates in the 2024 election cycle. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing key questions that voters should ask the candidates in the 2024 election cycle. And in this segment, we're going to be joined by Concord Coalition policy and media intern, uh, Kyle Duffy. Kyle is a native of New Hampshire and is presently attending American University in Washington. Kyle, I wanted to bring you on the show because uh, you worked a lot on the uh, the key questions document that we just put out. And one question in particular, I would have to say you lobbied for going all the way up to the executive director to insist <laughs> that, a, that a certain question uh, be uh, be included. And I want to I will read the question and then ask you why you thought it was so important to include this. Uh, the question is, it has become increasingly obvious that climate change is a budget and economic issue, while also presenting a serious threat to young voters and future generations. What methods, if any, do you support to reduce the harmful effects of climate change on the federal budget? And uh, I guess that that's a tell about the uh, effect on younger generations. Um, but, uh, but Kyle, I know you felt very strongly about including this question, and it's a first for the Concord Coalition in our many years of doing this, we haven't included a climate change question yet. Yeah, I, th- I think this question is included for kind of a twofold or two part reason. First, it's the economic issue, which for the past half decade, I think Concord Coalition has done a good job covering of, you know, prevention is going to reduce costs in the long term. And we're looking at the federal federal budget. That's really important when it comes to increasing storm frequency, storm intensity, other natural events, you know, water level rising, all those things, that's the economic factor. 
But I think the thing that I found really important about including this question is the young voter perspective, because if any candidate wants to be you know, seriously taken or be seriously engaged with by young voters at this point in time, you have to be talking about climate change. So by adding this question, and I feel like we're giving people a really solid um, understanding of what candidates are actually standing for and what they're looking to do if they are elected to office. Um, and in a way, we're giving the candidates a layup, too, because it gives them a method to connect to young voters and also connect to people who are in that budget issue voting camp. So I think with that economic and youth vote perspective combined, it makes it a really compelling question to include when you are looking at the 2024 cycle. Yeah, I've, I've certainly noticed that. Uh, and Phil Smith, our field director, has noticed it in doing events in the field that um it is a, a great concern around the world. Economic organizations have increasingly turned their attention to the effects of climate change, which we can see. I mean, it's um, it's certainly having a, an impact on the federal budget uh, just because of the increasing intensity of, of disasters. And uh, that has a budgetary effect, but it will also ultimately have a, an economic effect. And, and CBO has just now, just recently, uh, gotten into looking at the long-term economic consequences. Obviously, they're very, very uncertain, uh, but we need to look at um, we need to look at these and begin factoring uh, factoring them in. So it's uh, it is an important question, and uh, uh, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, sticking sticking up for your generation and making sure that we ask that in our, in our key questions. So. Uh, anything, uh, you know, Steve, uh, Tori, any uh, climate change follow up from either one? Well, I just I'd like to point out that, uh, you know, the, our, our nation's accountants. All right. This is the, the government accountability uh, office has recognized the, the dangers of climate change and adding it to its high risk report in 2013. So 10 years ago. GAO has been talking about climate change and how the federal government is not well positioned. This is their quote, not well positioned to address the fiscal exposure presented by climate change and needs a government wide strategic approach with strong leadership to manage related risks. So even though the green eye shade bean counters at GAO are saying, yo, federal government agencies across the federal government start talking, thinking and helping provide solutions to climate change. Yeah, I guess my, my only add on here is, you know, the risk with climate change is, you know, largely, well, not largely, but to, to, to some degree, the, the coastal areas, which are affected by the hurricanes, the you know, central part of the country affected by floods, the out west affected by forest fires. Well, you know, if you're dealing with floods and, and hurricanes and forest fires, it, we were talking about disaster expend, expenditures. The problem is that people like to live in the forest and they like to live on the coast. And so, you know, it's like, okay, well, we could save on disaster uh, relief if people didn't live in the path of fires and hurricanes, but everybody wants to live, you know, in, in places that are that are that are subject to risk. And so again, you have this tension of, you know, how do you get people to recognize the risk and give up the benefits of the things that they're used to doing? Oh, I've always thought that there was a that there was a good synergy between um, people that worry about the climate and people that worry about uh, the long term budget outlook, because in both cases, the earlier you start to make positive adjustments, the more time you will have for those things to 
impact and uh, compound and become effective. Um, I want to turn now to, um, I guess this was a new topic, climate change. Probably the oldest budget topic is eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse. Everybody wants to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse. So I, I, uh, Kyle may have taken credit for the climate change question. I wrote this first waste, fraud, and abuse question for the Concord Coalition. The first time we did one of these, probably in 1996 or 95 or whenever it was. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the concept is simple. And the question is, candidates for, often, often, candidates for office often cite eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse as an essential first step in reducing the deficit. But one lawmaker's wasteful spending is another lawmaker's essential program. Are there federal programs that benefit your own constituents you would consider cutting or eliminating to help reduce spending? And, you know, the reason that I've always wanted that question in there is, okay, you think the budget's full of waste, fraud, and abuse. Tell me something that benefits your constituents that you think is wasteful spending. Or Mm -hmm. is it a fact that everything that comes to your district and your constituents is an essential government function. But if it goes to somebody else, the heck with it. Cut it. And uh, some people are candid enough to say, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I'm elected to do. Uh, but uh, I think that that's a good challenging thought. If, if somebody's actually thought about waste, fraud and abuse and they can tell you something that comes to your district, uh, then maybe maybe they're, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe they're being candid. But. Uh, as we always like to say, there is no such thing as a line item in the budget that is uh, labeled waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, it's a matter of perception. It's there. We all know there's, there is waste, there is fraud, there is abuse. But identifying it and then eliminating it is, is you know, kind of difficult. And also, it just doesn't give you the magnitude of the savings that you right. need to get uh, to bring the, the budget anywhere near forget about balance, back to a a sustainable path. And having filibustered on that question, I'm going to move on to the last one Um, because we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on waste, fraud, and abuse. The last question is, I think, an interesting one because it says budget reform. If you were asked to serve on a fiscal commission in the next Congress, with the only requirement being that all policy options must be on the table, including tax increases, spending cuts, and entitlement reform, would you agree to participate? Tori, what do you think? I mean, I think it's a good question to ask because I think we need uh, lawmakers that are willing, you know, going back to this, you know, sacred cow argument that I made earlier, you know, that we're at a point where there can't be any more uh, sacred cows, right? Uh, we, we, we've got problem areas in in all areas of the budget. And so everything needs to be on the table. So it doesn't make any sense to put someone on a fiscal commission who's going to say, well, I'm not going to touch Social Security. I'm not going to touch taxes. I'm not going to or I'm not going to raise taxes. I'm not going to touch Medicare. I'm not going to touch defense spending. I'm not, you know, the only thing I'm willing to cut is, you know, foreign aid and and some, you know, innocuous waste, fraud and abuse. Okay, that's that's not helpful. Okay, everything needs to be on the table. And I think that's what this this question is, is getting at and i think that's you know that's the the answer that we want to elicit from members is yes everything should be on the table i think it's a good idea if you could get the members together and have a bipartisan agreement where essentially they're 
they're they're all willing to agree to put everything on the table. But you know what we've seen in recent years is there's this this dynamic where, for the most part, Republicans have rejected any and all tax increases, and Democrats have rejected pretty much any and all you know entitlement changes or just you know non defense discretionary spending changes. And so you know both sides have moved to these sort of polar ends where you know, I'm not going to raise taxes and I'm not going to cut spending. Well, those are the two ingredients of any solution. And you have these, you know, the, this dynamic or this division in the parties. And it just, you know, what's going to bring the parties together, I'm afraid, unfortunately, is it's going to take a crisis to force them to say, okay, wait, you know, we really have this problem and we're really going to have to get together and solve it. But, you know, until that happens, I just I'm just not quite sure that you're going to get a lot of volunteers to 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 join the commission and do the you know make the hard decisions that are that are necessary. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, you've been listening to Facing the Future. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been discussing a Concord Coalition new publication on key questions that voters should ask the candidates in the 2024 election cycle. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.